Welcome to the Three Wise Men of Divorce, Money, Psych, and Law podcast. Sit down with the California divorce experts, financial divorce consultant Mark Hill, psychologist Scott Weiner, and attorney Sean Weber for a frank and casual conversation about divorce, separation, co-parenting, and the difficult decisions real people like you face during these tough times. We know that if you are looking at divorce or separation, it can be scary and overwhelming. With combined experience of over 70 years in divorce and conflict management, we are here for you and look forward to helping by sharing our unique ideas, thoughts, and perspectives on divorce, separation, and co-parenting. Well, guys, we have a guest today. Um, Her name is Beth Ahrens. Hello, Beth. Hey, Sean. How are you? It's nice to be here. <laughs> it's nice to be here. I mean, we're on opposite coasts, so you're in Boston. I know. And we're, we're down here in San Diego. We are but so you... distancing. Oh, my God. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> the 3,000 mile. We're as far apart as we could be and still be in the continental United States, I think. I mean, unless you went to Maine or something. That could... <laughs> but um, Possibly. You and I, our paths have crossed quite a few times in the past. I've gotten to know you through the Academy of Professional Family Mediators, and I know you also do collaborative practice, and um, we always seem to find each other at these conferences and, and go to dinner and, and that sort of thing, and it's, it's nice to have you on our, uh, on our podcast. Welcome. Thank you. Yeah, no, so, it, you know, I just being in uh, Boston, it's, this is a treat because ordinarily we would not get to hang out and do th- something like this, you know, unless I was out in California. So. Right. Okay. So there you go. Although the, uh, the IACP forum is going to be in San Diego. I know. I know. I, I, so you're going to have I'm to submitting come down. my proposal. I'm getting my proposal in. I have to do this for Beth. Oh. <laughs> so <laughs> so for those of you in the, those of you that are just listening, Scott went out and he's like weather shaming. Beth, Where, where's out. the snow? Where's the snow? <laughs> um, I don't know, but <laughs> you, I have to go all... back inside. I have to go back inside because it's too hot out there. <laughs> <laughs> so, Beth, you're you're an attorney and you're a mediator, and yeah. uh, you're you're based out of uh, Southboro, Massachusetts, yes. right? And you 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 have your own practice, Aaron's Law and Mediation, and then you're of counsel to Skylark Law and Mediation as well. Right. Okay. And uh, you do a lot of. I know you do a lot of teaching. You teach at Suffolk University, and I've had the opportunity to 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 guest appear at your at your class with your students and and uh, your mediation class, and it's always fun to do that. Um. And you also, you, you now you're a double threat. You're kind of like Scott here. Scott here is the the JD and the uh, the psychologist. You are a an attorney, but you also have a. Did I hear that right? You have a master's in social work. Right, right, MSW. So I, I so don't practice though. I just practice law, but it's great background to have for what I do. I bet. Like, like, what does that do for your? When you when you engage with people on the law, what does the masters in social work? How does that help you? So, just as an example, uh, I I worked in a suite for many many years, and 
whenever there was a, a particularly uh, difficult client, uh, they were always sent my way because I had a way of calming them down and um, just, you know, helping them refocus. And I, so I think that's that's the social work skills. That's, you know, looking at people uh, as people and helping them walk through a process and just talking to them, uh, you know, like they're another person, you know, rather than just uh, a, a client. It's, it's a little bit different. So. Yeah. 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 I'm sure that really helps. And then uh, I also see you're currently the president of the Massachusetts Collaborative Law Council and you're on the board for the Massachusetts Council of, for Family Mediation. So you're getting around, aren't you? Right. And, and what a year I picked to be president, right? It, it's been such a, a challenging time. And uh, basically the whole time I've been president, we have not had one in-person meeting because it's a, it's a March to March uh, appointment. So uh, I got, to, I got, to, I got to launch us into virtual land. Um, but it's, it's been exciting because it's also given us some opportunities that we maybe wouldn't have had, like um, being able to do outreach to people uh, beyond the Massachusetts borders and, you know, our, with our intro to collaborative law training and um, being able to offer programming to people if, who are further away who ordinarily wouldn't be able to attend. So try to turn it around and still be productive and, and have offerings for people. So hopefully, hopefully someone will remember that, you know, I, I was part of that and tried to make it all happen uh, when no one actually saw me do anything in real life. So, <laughs> well, I know you were probably doing a lot. Um, so, you know, we've actually found there are benefits to COVID that were unexpected. I've been able to practice with people I used to train, you know, the country with 20 years ago that I've never done a case with until this year so that's actually been great yeah, yeah it's been a lot of fun, hasn't it? we made lemonade you know yeah. yeah well and i'm finding that the mediations and the collaborations through zoom are just fine they work pretty well mm -hmm. sometimes people that have difficulty being in the same room can be on the same zoom screen and tolerate each other i'm seeing yeah, a little bit of that it's easier to be in the Brady Bunch square sometimes than it is to be in the same room. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's 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 easier it's easier to come across the table than across the internet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, you know, well, so Beth, we were talking before we got on here, and one of the things that we thought was just a really interesting topic was the you know, the the really the multidimensional aspects of the marital home and how that um, really hits on three of the main areas that we focus on the legal, the emotional, and the financial. And so I just kind of wanted to kind of touch base with you. Just, you know, what are you thinking when you think of the marital home and the work that has to be done there? What, what comes to mind? Well, I think one of the reasons, you know, I think about it as multidimensional is because it touches on all of those different interwoven aspects, right? I mean, you know, as, as part of uh, uh, the set of assets, it might be one of the most valuable assets that the, you know, the couple has. Uh, it, it could be, you know, where they um, spent all their, their lives together and raised their kids. It could be very emotional. It's like an, it's an emotional asset. It's also a used asset. It's not just like an account that sits somewhere in a bank and you kind of get a statement. You're actually part of it. It's, it's, 
um, it's got history to it. And uh, so, I, so I just, I just thought that was interesting as far as, you know, assets go in particular, that it, it touches on so many different levels for people, which, you know, makes it more complex and, and, and also more interesting, right? Yeah, I mean, there's there's so many emotions tied into the house, aren't there? Yeah, and and certainly when we talk to clients about, you know, making uh, informationally formed decisions versus emotionally driven decisions, a, a lot of times it it revolves around a conversation, you know, regarding the house. So, so we're we're a community property state here in California. So everything that's acquired during the marriage is community property. How does that work in Massachusetts? So in Massachusetts, we have an equitable division property state. And um, so what that means essentially is any property, no matter whose name it's in or when it was acquired, is part of what we call the marital estate. And is potentially subject to division and the judge has the right to divide it. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's a little bit different as far as that I mean, we also have people who have prenuptial agreements, so you know there could be different terms in place. Um, you know, so it just it just depends. But uh, yeah, so but I guess my question for you would be that you know say that was something that was going to be a a fifty fifty split. You know, don't people have the ability to you know trade off or assets? You know, like house for something else or yeah, I mean the the horse trading happens in 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 what we do all the time. You know, some somebody may want to stay in the house for whatever reason, and then they can trade it off for other assets. You know, and and essentially buy the other person out of the house in exchange for a share of the other assets in the estate. Um, so people that do that in Massachusetts too. Sure. Yeah. Sure. That's going to be part of it. So that gets of course the challenge is that you get, you know, you're not getting apples to apples. Yeah. You know, the houses with the tax consequences are different than the um, uh, retirement assets are different than the stocks and bonds that may also have unrealized capital gain consequences. So I like it when we can divide like pools mm -hmm. <laughs> and it gets really complicated because they want to know, is it quote unquote fair? <laughs> well, fairness, I always say is like beauty. It's very much in the eye of the beholder. It's the F word, man. Uh, mm -hmm. Fair yeah. is the F word. Well, and there's different standards of fairness too. Right. You, right. We're always, if we're mediating or doing collaborative cases, we're always doing that in the shadow of the law. And so the legal mm -hmm. standard is one standard of fairness. But then there's also the moral standard and, you know, uh, relationship standards. And I don't know, I just, I just feel like there's, there's other ways that people look at it. And that's part of why I think, with, especially with the house, it becomes, you know, it becomes multidimensional. Well, the house is different. The house is kind of alive, you know, it's, it has a different feeling about it because the attachments we have to it. And it's like, um, I mean, I think it's a very ancient feeling, your shelter, your home, your domicile, all these different English words that go back for <laughs> centuries. Yeah. This is the real deal. Well, it cuts to the, but also that can be the same for the candidly, usually the guy and the pension. It's the same sort of emotional attachment. Mm. You know, the wife decorated it. She raised the 
children there. It's the only stable thing left in her her world. The husband works for the pension and damn it, she's not getting any of it. So I, I think that it's a similar sort of emotional attachment that we can see around that too. So what do you do when you have folks that are, um, you know, they, I, I hear this all the time. Uh, I want to keep the house because it'll be good for my kids, but you know, it's really about the person that wants to keep the house. And, and they, they kind of attach this emotional value to the house. that's really not appropriate when you consider what they're maybe trading for it. Like, like how many times have you seen people mark that, become house poor and trade off their mm. retirement assets and other assets so that they can keep a house. The classic story was from many years ago with a fellow who'd had a 20 year an affair with a, an old girlfriend throughout the marriage, felt totally guilty, felt he made enough money and everything was going to be fine, wanted to give the equity to the wife, woman in her early fifties who had retired from a government job with a very small pension and I pointed out to her that when the kids went to college, she had about three years left before she was going to be ripping up floorboards to keep herself warm in the winter. Her response to me was, we all have a, uh, a red light district in our town. Her response to me was, if I need to go turn tricks on Oceanside Boulevard to keep this house, I'll do it. Hmm. Just tells you the degree of attachment or perceived attachment that some people have to a residence. Well, it means more than what it looks like it should mean, right? If you're just putting together an asset list on a piece of paper, it just looks like another asset. But when you when you talk to clients and they feel like you are pulling away their, you know, like Scott was saying, their security and, uh, you know, the place where they raise their kids and they have their memories and like that's that's what people feel is tangible that they're losing. And so that's why they fight for it. Um I don't feel the same way. I don't feel the same way about anything else I own as I feel about my house. And I have more equity in other things than in my house. You know, I just think it's a different story. You know, (laughs) and frankly, when we bought the house, I hated it. (laughs) It had this sign out front that said, I'm gorgeous inside. Houses like that. You know what I mean? (laughs) Hilarious. And believe me, I made a point of letting her know that 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 I didn't miss that sign. But you know what? It's been um, eighteen years now, and we're actually in the in the process of selling it. And it's like I feel a little funny about it, hmm. you know. Now, she's my wife is foolish about this because she wants to move because I have trouble on the stairs because I don't walk well, and I'm telling her. This you're losing a chance because you could just push me down the stairs. It would be so seamless. I mean, yeah, I'm a problem you, you, solver, you own right? it in joint right, tenancy, right? What? You own it in joint tenancy, right? So she pushes you down the <laughs> stairs. Nobody knows. And then she and there's also the life thing. insurance. Oh yeah, I bet there's life insurance. There, there's a trust that was written by a much better lawyer than I am. Okay, we're gonna get letters. We're gonna get letters because there's somebody listening to us right now that's seriously contemplating. Hey, that's actually a good idea. That was excellent. <laughs> well, let's be clear. We don't we don't condone uh, uh, matricide. Is that is that a, is that a real word? <laughs> Is that a word? No more than we condone um, working in prohibited professions. That's right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 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 
Exactly. Well, okay. So, so, I mean, we were talking about this before we came on that, that you know, one of our colleagues here in San Diego, Janita Wall uh, of uh, second Saturday fame, she coined the phrase that the, the house is the marriage museum. You know, it's not just the house, but it's the stuff in the house and the memories that everything in the house kind of represents. So my parents are at the end of their life, you know, my mom just passed away and my dad's not young. And so we're looking at what do we have to do to clean the house up? And there is just a memory in every corner of that house. You know, they, they moved into that house when I was born. So they've been in that house for 48 years, soon to be 49. Right. And, um, there's just a lot of memories in that house. And, and what do you do with this thing that maybe is worthless to somebody else, but, but it just contains a memory. You know, there's a spirit about it. And so when you look at the, you know, this house, you know, you've been in your house for 18 years, Scott, and there's, there's probably, you probably raised a child there. And yeah, there's a lot of memories there. And I, I think a lot of our folks that are going through the divorce, not only are they facing the loss of their marriage, but Right, right, Maybe right. the loss of these this this domicile that made them feel comfortable and safe, and the things that are in there now have to be divided. And that can that can be a difficult conversation. Well, there's a term in our in our field um, which gets misused or let's used in an, an odd way many times, but it's a fetish. The things that we touch and the things that we make holy and the things that we you know we wind up caring about and we invest more in them than they intrinsically are worth, but they mean a lot to us. And, you know, the marriage museum, yes, but boy, the psychological end of that house is a big deal. But, you know, legally and financially, legally, there's a split between our jurisdictions, between how it operates, Beth, in, uh, in an equitable versus a, a community property world. And Mark, I don't know, what about the financial end of the house? I mean, <laughs> that's big big business here. Absolutely. And one of the questions I ask clients, even if they tell me they want the house, because I want to get them focused on the long term is, so is this your forever home? Mm. Is this your pine box residence? You know, I mean, really, do you, I, are you going to keep I, the only way they're getting out of me out of this house is in a pine box? One client once told me, okay, I get it. Okay. You really want the house. So, but, but the concept of I want the house, but then what does that mean? I'm working through a case right now where a client, she wants the house. She wants the house. Sean, we're on the same case. And when I asked her about it, I said, well, she goes, well, probably not because I want a pool and it doesn't have a pool. And, uh, you know, and it's like start talking about it and suddenly the attachment to the home becomes less intense and they can think more strategically rather than emotionally. Yeah, I, I like that. I like that. Go ahead, Beth. I was just going to say, I think also. Usually when the discussions start about who's living where, who's moving out, you know, what are we doing with the house? A lot of times that comes at the beginning of the process. Right. Because it's it, it could be like initiating a separation or something. So there's a lot of thought that goes uh, into that topic right at the beginning. Um, but that's oftentimes when it's the most emotionally charged. Right. So especially to the person who maybe, you know, was not thinking about getting divorced, it could be a complete surprise. And then all of a sudden they have to talk about who's leaving the house that they've been in for the last 20 years. And I. Uh, 
people tend to grip on because it's it's like maybe one thing that they can rely on or they thought that they could rely on. And so they, they grab hold of it and don't want to let go. So I, I found a lot, a lot of times that, that just being naturally curious and trying to get them to talk a lot more about their interests sometimes will open up more options. I mean, maybe not in that, you know, first week when they just found out that this is going to happen, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but when they've had a little time to process and just really think realistically through it, so I, I had a client who was so stuck and focused on, I need to, I need to have this house. I, I need my child to, you know, stay in the school district and, and, and all that. Um, and, you know, it turned out after she met with a financial person that it didn't actually look like she would be able to afford it on her own, even with financial support. And so we just, we, we just kind of kept encouraging, uh, you know, the parties to kind of, Look at other options and <clears throat> suggested that they talk to the daughter so the the daughter in that case was was a little older she was uh 14 so not you know just elementary school she was just about she was in starting gonna be starting high school yeah. uh and it turned out that the daughter actually didn't care about staying in the house at all where, where the parents were were sort of you know their mindset was we need to keep this house intact for our child yeah. And and the daughter didn't really care. She wanted to be able to maintain relationships with her friends in the town, um, but didn't really care if it was from that particular house. So I, I don't know. I just think that, you know, sometimes people grab onto an idea and uh, you have to keep probing and, and asking questions. Yeah. And, and asking them to take practical steps. Have you researched what other residence opportunities you might have have you go out and look at it take your daughter with you so she can get excited about a new room and so on and that often gets them off the the, the sort of the laser focus on if i don't have the house this whole deal is off yeah i like the the, the kind of the, the mental visualization that people can do when they start thinking about their future and start really thinking about well maybe there is an existence that could exist that may be a little different than what I'm in now. And, and it's okay. You know, getting people, the more they can visualize it and think about it. And so, you know, what would, what advice would you give to folks that are kind of really terrified about their house out there in the world that, you know, really frightened about what's going to happen? What advice would you give them? Well, I think, you know, one thing definitely is to, have have some acknowledgement of the fact that it, it is it is an emotional asset. I you know usually in a marriage there's only one home. Like usually people you know that's they've shared that and now it's not going to be shared anymore. So acknowledging that uh, you know is, is one step. And then I think like you know Mark was saying that definitely looking at the practical side. You know because in the end. Nobody wants to end up getting the home, right? And feeling like, oh, I did get it. And then the next year they can't afford it, right? It's, it's gotta be sustainable. It's gotta be practical. It's gotta be something that, you know, the person can be okay with after, or it's just not gonna and there's a, And there's also the aspect of the other side of the person who moved out is like, 
he slash she is in that 4,000 square foot home and I'm living in an 1,800 square foot rented apartment with bad neighbors upstairs and this is not fair. So it's kind of like there's another side to it too of the person who may not even want the house but still feels like this is patently unfair. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it's hard for folks, isn't it? You know, yeah. but there's a light at the end of the tunnel. I think that's the moral of the story here is that, you know what, it may not have turned out the way you dreamt, you know, yeah. but I, I and get the data. Yeah. And I'm struck by, you know, here we are in San Diego and here we have a professional here from the land of flounder and chowder. <laughs> and uh, even though they say chowder different than we do, it's virtually the same story. I mean, it's really incredible that, that, um, people are experiencing this the same way. And I've talked to people in different countries even, and it's, right, it's the right, same right. kind of this, this terror of losing the abode is very real, yeah. you know, but. And it, interestingly in the United Kingdom, where I'm from, the mother will always get the house. It's matter of public policy. Huh. Really? Yeah, really. Yeah. The mother, I mean, the, I mean, and I, an old girlfriend from college of mine spoke two years ago about this, about how we do this and collaborative. She was working. She was a family lawyer. Oh, no, the children must have the house. It's the only way we go over here. Interesting. What if, what if the mother is yeah. not the one who has the children? Well, that wouldn't happen in England. They're they're very backward. Yeah, really? We didn't get to that we did not get to that okay. part of the conversation, Beth, but and she's now retired, so I don't know <laughs> if I could get that answered. But that's a good question. But it was, you know, it was it was the whole concept around it is that that the house stays with the custodial parent yeah. is probably a better well, way makes, to put yeah. it, you know. Well, I mean, I, there's, well, a, there's an argument the homes, for that, right? What about in all the situations where you know, uh, since the entire marital estate is essentially being divided by two that uh, neither one of them can really afford it alone. I mean, they do property settlement notes. They do all sorts of oh things to maintain that is what I was told. Yeah. yeah. Well, right. I mean, that's what happens here. I mean, if, if somebody, if the parties can't agree on what's going to happen with the house, more often than not, it's the Solomon thing from the courts. Well, anyway. you know, Mark has already discussed the Oceanside Boulevard approach. Well, there's that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I don't think anyone's going to well, write that into an agreement, though. So. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> probably not enforceable. Yeah. And, and, well, and in order, we'll put that in the agreement. And and wife shall to care for the yeah. children and to meet the standard of living. Turn tricks on Oceanside. <laughs> I don't think that would work. Yeah, I, I think no. we might get some letters about that too. Yeah, yeah, that that won't fly in Massachusetts either. No, no, no. no, no. No, it'd well, be near Harvard Yard somewhere. Yeah, Harvard. <laughs> Quite fiercely, Harvard. You know, I, I do have to say, when I first came here, I traveled on the southern route. I came through Georgia and New Orleans, and I ran into somebody from Boston, um, and uh, I thought they were making fun of my accent and nearly got into a fist fight with him. Before <laughs> <laughs> I realized that he really talked that way. They really do talk like that. Well, and, 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 as, and as enjoyable as it is to make fun of your accent, Mark, <laughs> that's not what they were doing feel free that's not what we they were feel doing. free we do mark we do <laughs> but we just don't do it in front of you and, and not <laughs> no, mark is. makes a point of, of 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 telling us that we speak the wrong english oh, and i'm sure we do 
I'm sure we do. Yeah. You speak American. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the improved English. The reformed English. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> mm. Mark's like, I don't know about okay, that. that. There's, <laughs> a conversa- there's a conversation <laughs> to be had. <laughs> well, you know, well, you know, I just learned at a training that in research, Americans tend to distrust people who have other accents or, or like hold them in, in less regard, except for British accents. We hold them in higher regard. That's true. That's true. I have been told that all my success as a young man, both with women and in business, was as a, just only as a consequence of my accent. I had no other things to recommend. <laughs> you, so. that's you, how, you hear all that's these commercials. We talk about you too, Mark. A person could speak with a real poor person's English accent and we would never know the difference. Oh, yeah, you would. We would think you were as important as uh, Queen Elizabeth. No, no, no. Uh-huh. Not, not if I did if the you, Cockney I was just going to say mate. Cockney. Yeah, you would be very different. You, you might I, respect them, but you wouldn't know why because you wouldn't understand <laughs> every other word. They, they just talk funny. We like that. Well, Beth, it's been nice having you. Oh, this has been great. Thank you so much. So, Beth, um, if somebody were to get a, wanted to get a hold of you uh, to do some uh, family law work and some family law mediation, what would they have to do? Uh, well, I mean, emailing me is is great. I have a website, aaronslaw.net, A-A-R-O-N-S. Aaronslaw.net. Yep. All right. That's good. So if you're in the Boston area and you need some help, there she is, Beth Aaron. No, you can Zoom her from anywhere. Yeah, you can. Right? Well, you can I'm Zoom hoping, her from anywhere. I'm hoping to be in San Diego in the fall, so maybe I'll get to see you in person. That'll be good. We'll go get some dinner. Oh yeah. That'd be fun. Absolutely. If people wanted to talk about the financial aspects of their house and their divorce, what should they do? Go to my website, packdivorce.com, P-A-C-D-I-V-O-R-C-E. The company is Pacific Divorce Management. Okay. And if they would like to um, talk to Scott about not turning tricks to keep their house, (laughs) what should they do, Scott? Is that what they would call me about? Oh my lord, that's another specialty. I don't, I don't have that on my wall back there. I'm not saying calling you for the tricks. I'm talking oh, about no. calling you. <laughs> oh my! I'm sorry, I started. No, this. no, no. I, I'm glad you did. It's, I'm glad you started it. Okay. No, my name is Scott Weiner. I'm a psychologist and attorney, and I am old school and old. Both of those things. So you could call me on the phone and that's, I answer my own telephone at 619-417-5743. And there you have it. And if someone has a dispute that they need to resolve, we'll match you with the uh, dispute resolver. We'll match you with a mediator who can help you resolve your problem at WeberDisputeResolution.com. Again, that's Weber with one B, DisputeResolution.com. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Three Wisemen of Divorce, Money, Psych, and Law. If you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe, leave us a review, and share with others who may be in a similar place. Until next time, stay safe, healthy, and focused on a positive, bright future. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Every family law case is unique, so no legal, financial, or mental health advice is intended during this podcast. If you need help with your specific situation, 
feel free to schedule a time to speak with one of us for a personal consultation. 